All right, well, uh, it's good to be back with you tonight. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. You can turn back there, Ephesians chapter 6. You know, we're coming up on the end of our exposition of the book of Ephesians. Hard to believe. Told you last week, I'm sad about that. Uh, so many good things the Lord's taught us in this book. And last week, uh, we really entered into the, the exclamation point or the climax of Paul's letter in his um, spiritual warfare section in the book of Ephesians. And last week, Paul reminded us that we are in a cosmic battle every day, a battle that we can't afford not to think about. And that's why he ends the letter this way. That's why it's the, the exclamation point. He tells us that we are in a battle for the souls of humanity. Currently, Satan has enslaved this world. And all who currently do not believe in Jesus are marching to the beat of his drum. That's people on your campus, that's people in your family, that's people in your social relationships, people at your work, are under the power of Satan. And that was us too before Christ came in the power in, in power to us, to you, and resurrected you from the dead. You and I loved the darkness. We lived totally for ourselves before Christ. Whether that was manifested outwardly in rebellion or inwardly in our hearts, that was the, that was the case for each one of us before we came to Christ. But Christ changed all that, didn't He? He came to us as our divine warrior, our messianic king who liberated us from Satan and he delivered us from the wrath to come, the wrath that we deserve. And now we belong to him and him alone. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we're seated with him in the heavenlies. Not only are we raised, but we are seated with him in regal authority in the heavenly places in Christ. We're seated far above every other power, including... Satan and his hordes. And yet, here we remain. On earth, still in the, in the middle of the old creation, left here by Christ purposefully to stand against Satan. Christ has drafted us into his messianic army. He's outfitted us with His battle gear. We saw that last week. And He calls us to be empowered by Him for the fight and to learn to use His weaponry, the very same weaponry that He conquered with. But at the same time, He doesn't want us to get cocky in this battle, even though we, ha we are seated with Him in the heavenlies. He wants us to understand what we're up against. Even though we've been spiritually redeemed from Satan's power, we're still living under his dark regime, in a world under his influence. And even though we can't see them, Satan and his hordes are very real. They are way more powerful than you and I. And they, are at, they absolutely hate us as children of the light. They hate us. They hate humanity, but they hate us specifically. And to make matters worse, we're still battling with that old Adamic nature right in our very hearts. We're battling that old humanity that once totally spellbound us with Satan's schemes, 
We were once totally deceived, but now, even in Christ, we're still battling that old man. We're still tempted toward Satan's schemes. And so that means we can't afford not to lean in tonight. Not to learn to use the sufficient weaponry that we've been given in Christ. And so tonight, uh, Paul's going to take us through that. We're going to do just that. We're going to lean in and listen as Paul spells out exactly how we are to, quote, take up the complete armor of God, like he told us to do in, in uh, verses 11 and verse 13 we saw last week. And the glory of this passage, what I love is how radically ordinary, in one sense, uh, this armor is. They're normal means of grace that we've seen in lots of other places in the Bible and lots of other times in our study of Ephesians. But Paul, at the end of this letter, wants us to see these normal means of grace in terms of the cosmic battle that we're in. He wants us to connect how these normal things are actually the incredible weaponry against Satan and his schemes. And he wants to encourage us to use them. So, if you would, let's just read this entire passage again tonight, and then we'll, we'll launch into the back, the back nine here. He says in verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In light of that, or therefore, take up the whole armor of God, in order that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. In verse 14, whoever we'll pick up tonight, he says, Stand therefore. How do we do that? Well, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, before we we launch into the specifics of this armor that Paul details out here, I want to say one thing about where Paul's getting this imagery. Okay? We've often heard it said that Paul's detailing the Roman guard's armor here, and he's applying it to Christians in their scenario. Like he's, he's in prison, he's looking at the Roman guard, and he's kind of going from head to toe, and then using that as a parallel for, for this imagery here. Now, in one sense, I think he does, he does draw on that background. I mean, there's, that's the culture he lives in, that's the armor that they're going to be familiar with. So he is drawing on that, and we'll see that um, at some level in, this, in our discussion tonight. But I don't think this is primary. Now, if you're reading a, a New American Standard, how many of you, just out of curiosity, are reading a New American Standard? Raise your hand. Raise them high. A couple. All right. So, for those of you who are, you have a, you have a leg up, because you'll see a lots of capitalization in your text. And that's because, according to the, the translators of the New American Standard, they think Paul is 
quoting or alluding to the Old Testament, and I think they're right. More fundamental than, than the Roman guard background is the imagery of, of God in the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah's prophecy. In that particular book, over and over again, God describes both himself and his messianic king in, the, in imagery that's very similar. It's not exact, but it's very similar to what Paul uses here in Ephesians. There might be one or two places where it looks like he's pulling an exact quote, but, but otherwise, it's, I think he's just kind of grabbing holistically the imagery. In Isaiah, the Lord is a warrior king. He's clothed in his mighty character. So the, the armor is representative of his character, his name. And he comes in that character to save his people from both their sin and the enemies that oppress them. God and His Messiah are clothed for battle, that's the idea, and they're victorious in the battle, in Isaiah. So listen to just a few examples um, of this from the book of Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, you jot them down. Isaiah 11.5. Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, and Isaiah describes his character in terms of his armor. He says, uh, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, and and we're getting a little, we're zeroing in here a bit, but there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and they translated it into Greek. Okay? So it was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and that was very familiar to the first century authors like Paul. So many times, Paul would quote from that Greek translation, or he would allude to that Greek translation. And in that Greek translation, those Greek translators translated this this word for faithfulness. Faithfulness is the belt of his loins. They translated that word, which is uh, in, in Hebrew just means faithful or steady or trustworthy. They translated that word as truth. So a, a truth as the belt of his loins. So you see that here in, um, in what Paul's saying as the first piece of the armor. The belt of truth. Just one example. Another one, Isaiah 49.2. It says, he, he made my, and this is the Messiah himself talking, said, he, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And if you look throughout Isaiah, you're going to see this theme of the word of God in the mouth of the servant that's accomplishing things, doing things, winning battles. And in this case, in Isaiah 49.2, he compares his own mouth and and the words that are emanating from it as a sharp sword, which we're going to see that also in our text. Isaiah 59.17 says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate. That's one of the direct quotes. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So that's just a few, it's just a smattering throughout the book of Isaiah, but just my point is that I want you to see the biblical authors were not shy to to liken God and his Messiah to a warrior king that's coming, and they metaphorically describe his character as battle clothes. But Paul here, 
as an inspired apostle, makes an interesting development with this imagery in Ephesians. He applies the imagery of these Isianic texts to us as his people, as the people of the Messiah, as the church. Now, that's, if that's interesting, that's not a new thing. Even within the Old Testament, you have this, what's called a solidarity between the king and the people. So the king represents the people, and, the, and whatever the king does benefits the people, and they kind of take on that, what the king does. And with the Messiah, then, that's, that's going to be even more central in the prophets, according to what the prophets say. And so you see this playing out in lots of different imagery in the New Testament. So Jesus is the new temple, right? He calls himself that in John. But what are we? We're the temple in him, right? So Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new human, right? So what are we? We're the new humanity in him. And we could just keep going. So he is the messianic warrior king. And what are we? We're drafted into his army. And that's the idea. And that's why Paul can take, because we're in Christ, that's why Paul can take this imagery of Jesus and apply it to us. This happens all out, all throughout the New Testament. We can flesh that out later. We don't want to get bogged down here. But I just want you to see, this is what's happening, I think, in this passage. As his new humanity, we've been resurrected, and now as his new humanity, as his new, new people, we are his army to advance his mission on earth as we await the new creation. And that's, that's the point here. We're to be clothed with the Messiah's armor. And that's key. Clothed with His armor. We're to fight with His weaponry that He fights with. And we will overcome with the same kind of weaponry. We will overcome evil in the same kind of way that He did. In His footsteps, as His army, and may I even say in the same way, overcoming through death and resurrection. And so his kingdom is not of this earth, and we fight with, with weapons that the world doesn't know about. And we advance his kingdom on earth as we die for its sake. So this is the Cosmic Battle Part 2, and I'm calling this Fighting with the Messiah's Weaponry, as you, as you can see very clearly why. Fighting with the Messiah's weaponry, or learning to fight with his armor. And tonight, Paul's going to detail out six weapons that he wants us to appropriate. And again, this is going to be nothing new. These are very ordinary. He wants us to appropriate these weapons in the fight against Satan in this cosmic battle. And so this initial piece of battle armor that Paul describes uh, that's necessary if we're going to faithfully stand against Satan, is what we would call, uh, what we could call, truth that mobilizes. Truth that mobilizes. Now in these points, I'm going to try to describe, I think, the point of the armor, like the imagery. So truth that, that mobilizes, I think, is, is what he's saying here. Look at verse 14. He says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, so main command is stand, and the, and the means by which we stand is, he says, fastening on the belt of truth. Now when you think about a belt, you probably don't think of war, right? You probably think about your closet, 
and whether or not it matches your shoes. Okay, I think about that. I don't even have a belt on tonight. I forgot one. So, TMI, but we'll continue. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> All right, back at it. But if we translate this phrase literally, okay, if we translate the phrase literally, it's going to get awkward, but it, it goes like this. Stand, having girded your loins with truth. Stand, having girded your loins with truth. And again, you NASB lovers, got it, got it again. Bam, that's how they translated it. But what does that mean? Okay? I mean, we don't talk like that, thankfully. Well, in, in, the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see this phrase a lot in all kinds of contexts. And it had to do with, okay, hang with me, tucking your, your tunic in, right, between your legs and like into your belt. Okay, so they didn't wear pants, typically. They had these long tunics. They would bring it up and they would tuck it in their belt right here. And it would effectively make what was more like a dress into loose-fitting pants. <laughs> Hopefully none of you guys have ever tried to run or fight somebody in a dress. But just trust the ladies on this one, all right? It's probably not as easy to get around if your legs are getting tied up, right, in a dress. So girding, then, helps you get around much more effectively. So what's Paul saying here? <laughs> I just can't. I can't do this without laughing. I've got this image of guys running around in dresses. Not good. All right. And there was a snort. Nice. That's the first time my preaching I've ever gotten a snort. All right. So I think the idea is that Paul, what he's communicating here is a readiness. All right? A readiness. A, that, that the truth mobilizes us. Paul's saying that, that we should stand ready with the truth. We should be mobilized with it. It's like our belt that we tuck our tunic in, so to speak, so that we can fight effectively in the battle. So how exactly, then, does truth mobilize us in the warfare, in spiritual warfare? Well, if you remember back to last week, we saw that Satan's primary scheme, what he's doing, his campaign, is fundamentally an onslaught of propaganda. Remember? It's, a, it's this onslaught of fake news. You can borrow that phrase. He campaigns against us with falsehood and deceit. Paul described him as crafty, scheming, he's subtle. So then this means then that our only hope for defense and advancement is being thoroughly drenched with what is true. We'll discern the propaganda when our minds have been renewed in the truth. The idea. Without the truth, then, we're sitting ducks. Or to keep it the metaphor, our tunics aren't tucked in. Our garments are hanging around our legs, so when it's time to move, we're going to get tripped up. We'll stumble right out of the gate. We'll fall for lies. When the onslaught comes, instead of standing firm and swiftly advancing, we're going to be tangled up just after a few steps and laying on our backs. As we're going to see, laying on your back in spiritual warfare is not a good position because there are raining arrows of fire coming down on you. And that's the imagery here. So what does it look like 
to take up this first piece of armor, this belt of truth? How are we mobilized in the truth? That's a, another question. Again, this is not anything new in Ephesians. And just to underscore that, back in chapter 4, we, it, it, it looks like learning the truth from pastors and teachers. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That's what he says. Pastors and teachers, along with the other gifts, are, are given to equip the saints. So learning the truth from pastors and teachers. In the corporate gathering on Sunday, even on Thursday nights, our pastors are equipping you with the truth. That's the goal, sermon after sermon. So just coming to church is a matter of life and death. We put it in the spiritual warfare category. So not only does it look for like, like learning truth from your pastors and teachers, but it also looks like receiving the truth from others in discipleship. That's in verse 15 of chapter 4. So he says, speaking the truth in love, grow up into every way. And that's talking to the whole congregation. So the congregation is equipped by the pastors, and then they, in the truth, they then equip one another, they, they speak that truth, they live truthfully with one another in the context of the local, local body. Verse 15. The church then is to reverberate the truth that it's taught from Scripture to each other. And again, the Apostles' Doctrine. We have it right here, inscripturated. It's what Paul taught as an Apostle. The pastors and teachers are then to disseminate to the congregation. The congregation is to reverberate the truth to one another in all of its relationships. That's why it's so important that we know each other beyond just some superficiality, you know, because nobody likes to hear truth hammered on them without the context of a relationship. That's not how the Bible describes how we speak truth to one another. We're in a, an intimate relationship with each other. And that enables us to receive, give and receive truth and encouragement, even rebuke from one another in the truth. So, it, it's got, it's, it's, so you can think about it starting at the top from the apostles' doctrine to the elders and teacher, pastors and teachers going into the church, being disseminated by one another. But then there's also an individual responsibility in this in this appropriating the truth. And Paul tells us about that too. In chapter 4, verse 23, he says, you have to renew your mind personally in the truth. Each one of us, day in and day out. We each have Bibles. We each take notes in our sermons. We memorize the Bible. We think about it. We listen to songs. We memorize the lyrics of good theology in those songs. And so we have access to the truth in all these ways, we can, we can bring the truth to bear in our minds and our daily activities. And that's the idea. So we each have our individual responsibility to be renewing our minds in the truth. And we have to do that, remember, because we're struggling with that old nature, which brings us to the last, maybe, way that Ephesians tells us, is that we have to root out the lies that we're tempted to believe. Right? So if, if we're going to be mobilized in the truth, that means we have to expel the lies. We have to identify them, understand where we're deceived. Now, the difficulty here, and again, just so you see where that's, that, I'm taking that from, is uh, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. So there's a putting away of falsehood. You've got to identify them. You're going to put it away. You can't put away something you don't see. So we have to be able to identify the lies that we're tempted to believe in life. And the difficulty there is that you don't always see the lie, right? Because that's the essence of deception. 
But here's a good, here's a good way to understand what's going on. Where are you sinning? Okay? Where are you sinning right now? Because, Paul would tell us, if we're sinning in a particular area, that's because we have these desires for sin. And where do those desires come from? The desires come from being deceived. You tracking? We sin, we get angry, because we have these desires. We want this thing really bad, and we didn't get it. So now we're, now we're mad because we have these desires. Well, why do I even have those desires in the first place? Because I believe something. And it's probably not true. It's definitely not true. Because if it was true, I wouldn't be getting angry, right? That truth would then produce, by the Spirit's power, patience, graciousness, whatever, whatever it is. So that's, we talk about sin in our lives as sort of the check engine light to help us track back to the deceit. And, and again, just to show you I'm not making this stuff up, this is exactly what Paul says in, in chapter 4, in verse 22. Just flip back there. He says, we, are, we were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off our old self. That's the old Adam, the old Adamic nature. Then he describes this nature that we still have, that we have, to, we have to get rid of, we have to continually put it off. He describes this nature as belonging to our former manner of life, i.e. pre-Christ, and is corrupted. How is it corrupted? It's corrupted through deceitful desires, is the way the ESV translates that. In, in Greek, to translate it woodenly, is being corrupted, or is corrupted, through the desires of deceit. Which means, deceit is producing desires, which is producing corruption. It's the exact progression I just took you through. Because we're deceived, it's producing these desires that leads to sin. So that means we can work backwards. We can go from sin in our life. I mean, the, the wrong desires are also sin. The lies that we believe is also sin. You know what I'm saying. But sin, kind of at the ground level, as it's, as it's manifesting in our lives. We can work that back. So this means, then, appropriating the truth, the truth that mobilizes, taking up this weapon of truth, means we have to do battle at that level. Does that make sense? We have to expose those lies and we know we're duped if we're sinning. So, that's like a sermon series in itself, okay? So, I'm just, I'm, again, just dropping this on you as a reminder that this is what this entails. This battle, this, and, and that I'm not making this up. This is what Paul would say if he were here. So, remember then, that in our sin, that these lies are ultimately satanic. Again, I think that's what Paul would want us to make the connection here. They're all, there's not just sort of this neutral, like, oh, I'm just, li- I'm just believing a lie and I'm sinning. It's satanic. Like, it's, it's for his kingdom. It's for his purposes. It's part of his warfare against you and Christ. So there's a subtle enemy, and he's, he's trying to get at you. Which makes this very important, that we do battle at this, in this area. But just as an encouragement, as we do battle at this level, our discernment is going to radically increase. 
okay? So even if you're on the very beginnings of this and you need help, that's why we're here. Pastors and teachers equip you, right? Um, so we want to help you work through some of those things. We, I need help just like you need help to be able to recognize the lies that I believe. But as we do battle at this level, your discernment's going to increase. You're going to become more and more mobilized, girded up to stand against Satan and his schemes, and to be used by the Lord then as a reverberator of that truth. Because guess what? Whenever you have done the hard work of going from your sin patterns back to the lies that you've believed, you're not really that different from your neighbor. So when they're trapped in sin, those patterns of anxiety or depression or whatever it is, you're going to be able to help them trace that back to the lies they believe because they're going to be very similar to the lies you believe. And now you know what the truths are that combated those lies and how you've learned to put that off and to put on the truth and what the process of repentance looks like. So, just as an encouragement, as we get after taking up the truth, that's going to increase our discernment, and we're going to be that much more effective right here in Timberlake, right here in Boundless, right here with the person sitting next to you. You see what I'm saying? That's what Paul would, would have us understand with this, first, with this first piece of armor. And that's not it. Paul goes on to add several more here. We'll call this next one righteousness that protects. Righteousness that protects. You can flip back to chapter 6. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So again, stand by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate, as the name implies, covers your chest and all your vital organs. It's incredibly protective, which is why I'm describing our next point as the righteousness that protects. Um, but what exactly is he talking about here when he refers to righteousness? That's the question, I think, of this this um, piece of armor. Well, I think the core of what he's talking about here is, is Christ-likeness in all of its fullness. Christ-likeness in all of its fullness. That's Righteousness is sort of shorthand for that. It's similar to holiness, like righteousness and holiness. You're going to see that pairing in Ephesians 4 as sort of a summary of, of the virtues that are found in Christ. And again, I think it's just Paul's shorthand right here because he's, he's trying to emphasize the, the, the war that we're in, saying the righteousness is the breastplate. It's Christ's own character in action. And it's protective to us in at least two ways. Okay, I don't know if I have this on screen. I do. Christ's own righteousness and that's freely given to us in the gospel. His own righteousness protects us from Satan's accusations. So we know that Satan and his hordes are all the time accusing the brethren. That's like what his name means, the accuser. And we all know the guilt that comes when we sin, don't we? Guilt's not bad. Guilt's a gift. But Satan then tempts us to respond wrongly to that sin and wrongly to that guilt. You know, I, I tell people, don't sin twice. You've already sinned once. Like, respond in the right way to your sin. 
But Satan tempts us to respond wrongly to our sin. He tempts us to sulk or to hide or to blame other people, run from God, or, most sinister, to begin to doubt the love of God for you, if you're his child. We think things like, how could he still love me? I've blown it again. Like, I know better. Yeah, you do. But you did it. You blew it again. And it didn't surprise the Lord. And in fact, he died for that. But the protection here in Christ is Christ's righteousness. When he saved us, he gave us freely his own righteousness. That's the glory of the Messiah. Like, that's why it's such good news. Is because he did what we couldn't do. He did what Israel couldn't do. He did what the Gentiles couldn't do. He was perfect. Perfectly righteous. He earned the obedience that we could never earn, that Adam failed and everybody since him failed to do. He earned it. And as the Messiah, he freely dispenses it to all who come to him. And all of the Messianic blessings are dispensed in and through the Lord Jesus to us as his new covenant people, as Gentiles, as dogs. People don't deserve any of it. Formerly enslaved to Satan, advancing his kingdom, now freely forgiven, fully loved in the Messiah, clothed with the Messiah's own righteousness. The theological word for this is imputed righteousness. Meaning he gave it to us as a free and glorious gift, credited it to us on our account, despite what we deserve. It's a free and glorious gift. It's his righteous character. Perfect obedience is ours in Christ. And when God sees us then, he sees Christ's very own righteousness. Not ours. Now this is very important, as you can see. Very protective, very foundational. This helps us to see our own sin and to come to Christ and God in honest confession and to confess to others knowing that his love for us has never changed in Christ. Knowing that our righteous standing has never changed because we're in Christ. This is the most fundamental aspect of the breastplate of righteousness. This is how your vital organs are protected, is through his righteousness. And all of Satan's accusations fall flat because we are in Christ. We're protected by him. And that's primary, but then there's sort of a secondary aspect of this righteousness that flows out of the first, which is as we grow in putting on Christ's righteousness and resembling Him, as we grow in that, we're protected from the devastating sin patterns we once lived in. You grow in actual righteousness, i.e. Christ-likeness. You become like Him more and more. You're continually protected from devastating sin patterns in your life. And they are devastating. Like sin will wreck you. That's, that's Satan's aim, is to burn your life up. Satan tries to deceive us into sinning against Christ, and when we are in sin, we are advancing Satan's agenda instead of our Lord's. And Satan's goal in getting us to sin is to introduce pain, introduce confusion, introduce depression, introduce fear, anger, resentment, gossip, and all those devastations into our life. But, as we cultivate Christ's righteousness, 
standing on his own righteousness, right? We're standing on it confidently. Now we're becoming like him. We are protected from all of that junk. Instead of advancing Satan's kingdom, we advance Christ's and we experience his joy and his fruitfulness, his productivity, his clarity, his peace, as he intends for his people. And if you're like, well, how do I do that? Well, go back and listen to <laughs> the whole back half of, the, of our messages on Ephesians. Because what Paul's been doing this whole time is he's been helping you figure out exactly how you're supposed to put on this new humanity, the, the character of the Lord Jesus. And, you know, we've been just like slowly working through it and getting hammered week in and week out because um, it's challenging stuff, but it's, it's very helpful when we see it through this lens. And the point in this context, in the context of spiritual warfare, is that we see Christ's righteousness as armor. Okay? That's the point here. That's why he's not like, spelling it out. He's already spelled it out. The point here, he wants you to see it with the metaphor. It's armor. We see the virtues that we're striving to cultivate as making you an effective warrior in the cosmic battle. That's incentivizing, isn't it? To think that you're kicking Satan's hordes in the teeth as you cultivate Christ's likeness is highly motivating. So that's our second piece of armor here, a righteousness that protects. Now, in verse 15, Paul describes his third bit of battle armor as he moves down to our feet. We'll call this one uh, readiness that advances. Readiness that advances. Look in verse 15. It says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. As shoes for your feet, uh, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now in this verse, Paul says that our battle boots are another interesting virtue. Uh, readiness or preparedness. He's saying we need to be ready or prepared for something. Well, prepared for what? Hold on. Paul doesn't answer that question explicitly here. Why it's so puzzling to everybody. But, let's put that question on the back burner for just a second. We're going to come back to it. But the rest of the context gives us a lot of clues as to what we're supposed to be ready for. Okay? Notice, Paul says that this readiness comes from something, or it's produced by something. Paul says the readiness that we're to put on comes from the gospel. Readiness of the gospel, readiness from the gospel, depending on how your translation put it. But the idea is it's, it's sourced out of the gospel. We become ready as we know the gospel. And the gospel, he says here in this text, is the good news of peace. The news that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The news that we're no longer enemies alongside Satan. No longer under Satan's influence. No longer children of wrath. All because of Christ. Now, that's the best news a human could hear. And Paul says that this gospel about peace produces readiness. Or it should produce readiness in the Christian life. And remember, it's readiness then, another clue, readiness that's like shoes for our feet. So when we put all the clues together, I think, Paul's telling us that our own experience of the gospel, our own living in its glorious reality actually prepares us to share that same gospel. It prepares us to advance it as we step forward in bold proclamation. 
Our feet are readied to stand and to step forward. So just think about that for a second. We have the reconciling message of Christ. We have the reconciling message of the King. We've experienced it. And now we're encouraged, as a result, to be ready to share it. But we're often not ready to share it, aren't we? We're often not thinking about sharing the gospel. Or if we are, many times we're too afraid to actually do it. And that means we haven't readied ourselves. That's, Paul knows that. That's why he says it's part of the armor. Because we're often not going to be ready. And he knew the Ephesians were often not going to be ready. And so part of our growth is to be ready. Um, to ready ourselves. Now again, lots of things we could talk about here. A lot. So I'm just going to blow through some of these. How do we cultivate this kind of readiness? It's going to be another sermon in and of itself. Sermon on evangelism. We're going to see below, probably next week, that uh, we're ready through prayer. We're ready through prayer. So how is prayer so vital to our readiness? Well, in verse 18, Paul's going to tell us that we pray ourselves to become alert to opportunities, to alertness. Like in our prayers, we pray and we become alert in our prayers. We start talking to God about the things that matter and it helps us to refocus on the ultimate eternal things in prayer. Later in this text, Paul's going to ask the Ephesians to pray that God would give him literally a word and boldness. A word and boldness. Paul needed to know what to say and the courage to say it when the opportunity came in verses 19 and 20. He wanted to be ready, in other words. So, prayer, again, another way prayer readies us. Paul even asks in Colossians, he even asks the saints to pray for God-ordained opportunities for him. Colossians 4.2. So that means, all that to, put all that together, when we're praying for opportunities, when we're praying for boldness in witness, when we're praying for wisdom and what to say to people, when we're praying to be alert, we are readying ourselves. We're putting on our feet this readiness to advance Christ's mission in evangelism. Sometimes, you know, my family, Mary and I pray together, um, she will pray for our neighbors, for the Lord to save our neighbors. And even that prayer is convicting to me. Because it's like, man, I'm not even thinking about that. You know? But the prayer enables her, like she's helping me, enabling me to ready myself um, to be thinking in those categories, to be, have the, my neighbors more on my heart. But again, just, a, just an example. We're ready through prayer. Just a couple other things, just real quick. We're ready through a deepening knowledge of the gospel. We're ready through a deepening knowledge of the gospel. Meaning, the more we understand the gospel, the better prepared we will be for evangelism. When we saturate our minds for all that God has done for us as sinners, when we know those texts, when it's clear to us what they mean, when we live in its power, when we become aware of the power of the gospel, like we're going to see in just a minute, we're then we're readying ourselves for evangelism. Again, that's like another, another sermon. But we're ready through a deepening knowledge of the gospel. We're also ready through a deepening knowledge of hell. A deepening knowledge of what awaits the unbeliever if they do not repent. 
through a deepening knowledge of the seriousness and evil of sin and the necessity of its punishment. This will ready us for evangelism. And, last, through a deepening desire to see God worshipped. Because He's not. And Satan is. A deepening desire to see God worshipped and His glory to advance. Churches to be planted. That's going to ready us for evangelism. It doesn't mean you forget everything else you're doing, like your job and being excellent and all that stuff in your work. No. What Paul's just saying is that just we want to be cultivating this sort of readiness in our heart, as Peter says, to give an answer to those who ask. It's the same concept there in 1 Peter. So Paul says that cultivating this readiness is essential if we're going to make advances against Satan in this cosmic battle. If we're not ready when the opportunities come at work or at home or in a community, we will not evangelize. You hear me? If we're not ready, we won't evangelize. So readiness is part of fighting with the Messiah's weapons, like Paul says here. Now, number four, next weapon, faith that shields. Faith that shields. Look in verse 16. In all circumstances, again, this is still a participle, so in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So it's still modifying this idea of stand. So stand by taking up the shield of faith in every circumstance with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, as we even read that, you probably noticed that, that this little bit of armor stands out from the other things that we've read so far. Paul, just in, the, in how important that, like, just some the emphasis he puts on it. He says, we're called to arm ourselves with faith in everything or in every circumstance. See that? If we do, he says, we're going to extinguish every single flaming dart of the evil one. Whoa. That's pretty important. That's pretty comprehensive. So, faith, we need to ask, what is that? What is faith? Well, faith is believing. Faith is resting. Faith is trusting. Faith is yielding to God's word above what we think, above what we feel, above what we want. Faith yields to God in his word. Faith receives what God promises. Faith trembles at what God warns against. Faith obeys God's commands. In its most basic sense, the Christian life is a life of faith. You want to summarize it? And Paul says here, we need this shield in all of life's circumstances to extinguish all of Satan's fiery arrows, his fiery lies. And the lies are coming and are here. Paul compares them. He, he, he expands on this point to draw out the, the seriousness of what's going on here. He says that he compares these lies of Satan to flaming darts or arrows that are literally like in the sky coming down, raining in fire on God's people. They're arrows lit on fire, intending to lodge in the wooden shields of the warriors and to set them on fire. What a great metaphor for us to remember when we are tempted with sin. Satan's aim is to set us on fire with his deceit. But the shield that Paul's referring to, take up the shield of faith, is not a small wooden shield that could get ignited easily. 
But the shield that Paul's referring to is designed for flaming arrows, specifically. It's essentially a shield the size of a door wrapped in leather and drenched in water. And it's designed to extinguish these flaming arrows in battle. So there's the Roman soldier background coming out. And Paul here says that faith does precisely that. It's the door shield, right? With wrapped in leather. It's going gonna, it's gonna to extinguish the fires of unbelief when they hit. And what I love about this piece of armor, this faith, is it is not contingent on feeling. Did you hear me? You feelings-oriented people? Which I'm one of them. So are you. <laughs> so, feelings-oriented folks, herein. In fact, faith is not contingent on feelings. Faith is often exercised in spite of what we feel. And if you object, think Abraham. Do you think he wanted to sacrifice Isaac at God's command? Yes or no? No. He did not. Absolutely not. But his faith was operative. He trusted God's promise, and he acted in obedience in spite of what he felt. He yielded his own will. He yielded what he thought was best. Kill my son? The son of promise that you promised to me and made Sarah birth when she was 99 years old? Like, to carry out the promises of, of creation that you would... I mean, there's a lot riding on this guy. And I'm supposed to kill him? He yielded to what he thought was best, and he trusted in God's word. He girded his loins with the truth, armor number one, and he yielded himself by faith to it. Well, this means then that we've got to strengthen faith, right? Like You have faith if you're a believer. God has granted that to you. You have faith. And again, it's another sermon, but wow, that's a sweet gift. It's very encouraging that he granted that to me. It means I can't lose it. But we have to strengthen it. Well, how? Do you realize that every act of obedience to Christ, every one of them, is ultimately an act of faith? Right? It should be, at least. You should be saying, God, Lord, I'm doing this because I trust you. I trust you. I don't want to do it, but I trust you. It's going to be hard for me to do it, but I trust you. I don't want to wake up, but I trust you. You say I need the word, so I'm going to get up. I trust you. Life is faith. Christian life is a life of faith. When you trust the Lord, when you obey him, just like Abraham, you're actively strengthening faith. You're exercising your faith muscle. You're learning to rely not on what you feel, not on what you see, not on what you experience, but on God's word alone. That's it. And that's how we strengthen faith. And as we do this day in and day out, we are extinguishing Satan's lies. We're refusing his temptations. We are standing against him in this cosmic battle. So faith is our fourth part of the armor. It's central to everything. And now Paul's going to describe our fifth piece of armor. We're going to wrap up soon here. But it's at this point that it's as though the intensity ratchets up a little bit in the, in the text. 
up until now, all the bits of armor have been describing how we stand. I've tried to draw that out. Stand, girding up your loins. Stand, putting on the breastplate. Stand, taking up your you know, shield. But now, the grammar changes. He brings in another imperative command. No more participles. There's another command here. He says, take up. Grab this stuff I'm about to tell you as you're headed out for the battle. Take up your helmet. Take up your sword. It's as though our remaining weaponry has a forward-looking, take-the-hill kind of attitude to it. We'll call our fifth piece of armor then salvation that energizes. Salvation that energizes. Paul tells us in verse 17, look at it there, take up, or take, Imperative, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So one verb, take, and then two objects, the helmet and the sword. All right, we'll take them one at a time. Salvation is the helmet. The helmet we grab as we're running to the battle is our salvation. Our head is protected then as we lean in, as we lean forward in the battle into, into enemy territory. So, why am I say, saying that the battle energizes? How does a helmet energize someone? Is it like some magic helmet? Like, no. Um, I think that's what Paul would intend us to take away because I think Paul's envisioning here our hope of final salvation. The salvation that's coming at the return of Jesus. When he rescues us fully and finally from all of our enemies, including Satan. Now, there's a lot of reasons I think that, but in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul uses this exact same imagery of putting on the helmet of salvation. Okay? So this imagery comes, pops up in a couple different places in the Bible, and 1 Thess 5 is, is one of them. And he, he calls it there the hope of salvation. Put on the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. So there is, he's a little more explicit. Our sure hope Hope is forward-looking. Hope that we will be saved, that we will be delivered, that we will be rescued. And I think this future idea fits beautifully here, too. So then that brings up another question. Then, How does future salvation help us or energize us in the battle? How is it a spiritual armament? Well, we're currently under siege by satanic forces that are far more powerful and cunning than we are. Right? But when we remember that the final victory is sure that ultimate deliverance has been accomplished and will most certainly be executed when the king returns. When we remember that, man, we're energized in the fight. I'm emboldened. I'm energized to fight. This helps us when we're discouraged by, what, by, by, by the advances of evil that we see in the world. This helps us when, when we're discouraged by our lack, of, our lack of progress ourselves. The war has been won by Christ. He sits enthroned, and he's coming soon, like he says in Romans, to crush Satan under our feet. So, hold the line. Don't be afraid. Go into battle, head down, because you have a helmet. Even if we die in the battle, even if we, if we die holding the line, and we likely will at some point, whether by natural means or persecution, our deliverance is still coming. 
Death will not get the final word, just like it didn't with Christ. Our resurrection is coming, and life eternal awaits us. That's our salvation. The new creation is our inheritance. We will reign over Satan. We will reign over his angels and all of our enemies when Christ returns. He will save us. And this kind of confident future hope will energize us in the battle today. When the helmet then is strapped on securely by faith, we can run headlong into the battle with perseverance, not loving our lives unto death. And if we're wearied in the battle now, which I get there, I'm wearied, just like you're wearied at times, it means we need this bit of armor more than ever. We need to feel around and like remind ourselves that we have a helmet on, and it's a helmet of salvation. So let the Spirit breathe new life into your soul through this glorious hope of your future salvation. And even now, as we feel the strength in our hands rising from this hope, there's something else we want to grab. And it's our sword, along with our helmet. And this is our sixth and final weapon. We're going to end here. And it's the word that attacks. It's the word that attacks. Look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In this final weapon, Paul ends where he begins with an emphasis on the truth. Here, though, the emphasis is not on mobilization only as a belt, but it's on active counteraction with, with close sword in, in kind of close hand-to-hand combat. And before he identifies the weapon as the word of God, Paul describes the sword as belonging to or ultimately wielded by another person, not you. And interesting, because it's a sword for you. It's wielded by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit sword, or the sword the Spirit uses. Now, I think that's interesting, because we're, we're, we're the ones called upon to take it up and use it. But Paul wants us to be aware that as we use it, we ourselves aren't bringing about any kind of change in and of ourselves. You and I are not ultimately, ultimately, advancing anything by ourselves, I think that's the point, with this sword. Ultimately, it's the Spirit who makes the attack lethal. It's Him. He energizes the Word. And that's exactly what the sword is, Paul says. It's the Word of God. The life-giving, world-creating, resurrecting, faith-generating Word of God in the hands of the third person of the Trinity, the Word of God is the most powerful weapon that we could possess as human beings. As we proclaim it, God promises to work through it. His promise is tagged to that. As we preach it in weakness, He promises to work through it. He promises to bring about everything he intends through the disseminating of his words. It's a propaganda battle, guys. So how exactly does God weaponize his word in spiritual warfare? This is just scratching the surface, okay? He creates faith. 
by the proclamation of his word. Acts 15.7, Romans 10.17. He multiplies disciples by the power of his word. Acts 12.24. He causes people to be born again. 1 Peter 1.23. The implication then is that he transfers those who are under Satan's dominion into the kingdom of his son by his word. That's it. I stand up here with no power and I tell you things that are true and God's spirit renovates your heart like he gives you a new one through the simple proclamation of the gospel. Like I have no power. I have none. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says he destroys spiritual strongholds by his word. And he uses his word to take every one of your thoughts captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. My word, (laughs) that's a lot going on there. God builds up his people by his word. Acts 20, 32, God teaches and admonishes his people by his word. Colossians 3, 16, God is at work in his people through his word. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the human heart by the preaching. pretty powerful weapon. So if you want to summarize it, we could say that God is on the offensive through the Spirit via His Word as you disseminate it in your weakness. He attacks in evangelism. He attacks in the edification of His saints. To paraphrase Martin Luther, the Word is a lion. All you have to do is let him out of the cage. That's definitely what you see in the book of Acts. As the gospel goes forward through his witnesses and the power of his spirit. The way Luke tells the story, he he describes it as though the word itself is doing the multiplying. That's because it's God's infinitely powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. And that word has been given to each one of us. So, most fundamentally then, We need to be confident. Confident not in ourselves, but in God's empowering word. And we need to stand on it unswervingly. We say this almost every week, but we really don't need anything else. You're not going to find anything with more power than God's very words. So don't fall prey to thinking that we need something more than the Bible or in addition to the Bible to actually help dead sinners come to life and be transformed into all that God intends for them. Don't fall prey to that. When it comes to how we wield this incredible sword, we've got to remember the rest of the commands of Scripture still apply. We can't just go hacking, wrongly motivated, Right? We wield it with the humility of Christ Himself. We wield it as we're motivated by the self sacrificing love of our Messiah. We wield it with great gentleness, with pity, with patience, and with great understanding and empathy. Yet we wield it unswervingly. 
We wield it in season and out of season. When it's popular or not. And ultimately, we wield it in joyful confidence. Knowing that God will accomplish absolutely everything He intends through it. Satan cannot stand against the Word of the living God. So that's, that's we're going to end here tonight. We've got more to talk about about prayer, but we're going to see this is, this is intimately connected to the weaponry, especially to the proclamation of the Word. But Paul doesn't actually make it part of the war metaphor. He doesn't like give, it a, give it a symbol. But he does spend a lot of time on prayer, especially as he's kind of wrapping up the letters. So I didn't want to rush through that tonight. I'm going to leave that for next week. But for tonight, just think through this list. Think about which part of this armor stands out most to you. Which one have you underestimated? Uh, which one have you neglected, potentially? Which one is an encouragement to you? Identify one or two, and then try to cultivate it more this week. Remember, again, Paul would have us remember as we're fi- finishing this letter, we are in a cosmic war every day fighting a very crafty, unseen enemy. So don't be lulled to sleep by him. Don't pretend he doesn't exist. Yet don't be terrified of him either. Be strong in the strength that Christ supplies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for clothing us so well in the armor of your Messiah. Help us to appropriate it this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.